you have not only the white sheets from last time, which uh, were uh, part six, um, and that's what I have up here on the board. Uh, Last week, we uh, moved forward with uh, what was going on in the 1960s. When you go over, uh, we saw the themes, um, that is, after the war, we saw uh, the interaction between the Lutherans. Uh, we also saw that there was world movements that were going on and, and uh, uh, causing church bodies to interact. We saw there was the ecumenical movement, the idea that we needed to all be united together. There was missions and uh, that was uh, being uh, engaged by all of the uh, churches, not just the Lutherans, but uh, as well. Uh, one of the big things that we saw was the historical critical method of biblical interpretation in your white sheets that you have in front of you from last time, uh, I compared what was the historical grammatical historical uh, historical grammatical contextual theological method with the historical critical method, um, and saw that the historical critical method. Uh, did not treat the scriptures as a divine book, as inspired and inerrant, uh, but instead put reason above the text. This is the method that uh, uh, we are using, the historical, grammatical, contextual, in which we want to find out what it says, not judge what it says. Mary? It just popped into my head. I don't know why. Uh, the historical critical method, you could see non-Christians doing that because, you know, this is the most popular book in the world and all that, so they would be attracted to reading it and maybe knocking it down. But what appeal did this have, even from the beginning, to Christians? The other people in the world were using it. As we started to interact with them, we began to, oh, well, what are you doing? What, you know, and all. Well, if you want to participate in the scholarship of the world and everybody else, you're going to have to use the method that they're using if you want to. Now, Mommy, everybody else is doing it. I would compare it, at least scientifically, if you are a someone who believes in creation, you're not going to get published in the science world. So therefore, you have to, if you want to move up, if you want to, and, and before, you know, it, it really didn't matter. We had our seminary profs there at our seminary. We're, well, now they're publishing papers in universal bibliography, RV, you know. Yeah, you want to play with the big guys? Th that was the appeal. Okay. Um, we saw that by the 1960s, the American Lutheran Church had pulled in all of the American Lutheran Conference we saw that the Lutheran Church in America had pulled in all of the East Coast, uh, had pulled off the Augustana Senate, which was already playing with them in areas of social gospel, of you know, all of these kind of, of, of areas. And pretty well, the Synodical Conference was left out of this. Although uh, there were as I say, primarily three groupings, what we found is going through the 1920s into the 30s, 40s, and we're going to see if the 50s is, is where we start to see this, um, that, that bureaucratic structure didn't really tell the whole story. Because of all this interaction, because of what was going on, um, there were within all of the groups 
both camps, and it all depended on who was in control, who was leading, or who won the vote at the last convention. And that's what you're going to see. Um, to push forward just a little bit and get on to our uh, yellow sheet, the Lutheran Council in the USA, the LCUSA, was founded in 1967. There were other uh, bodies, Lutheran World Federation, World Council of Churches, you know, there were others. Missouri had kind of stayed out of it, and the Synodical Conference had kind of stayed out of those. They would occasionally send observers to it, but they weren't a part of it. When it came to the LCUSA, this is where it finally, by 1967, this ecumenical organization of American Lutherans, succeeding the National Lutheran Council, founded by four Lutheran church bodies, the LCA, Lutheran Church in America, the American Lutheran Church, ALC, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, LCMS, even the Senate of Evangelical Lutheran Churches, the Slovak, uh, was the one that uh, all went together with this. Um, again, the National Lutheran Council, which was following World War II, and, and some of those had kind of led the way for it. But at this point, well, as long as you agree to have talks of theology, the LCMS said, yeah, yeah, we, we can be a part of that group. Um, and this was, I'm going to say, as I said before, they'd kind of resisted to this point. At this point, they jump into it. Um, and it uh, continues 1988. We'll come to that in just a little bit. This is where all of the other groups go together to form the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. All right, so, Ecumenical. Ecumenical meant we're all united. I started talking to you and you started talking to me and I found out you're a believer. We ought to be together. Um, in fact, I started talking to them more about things and there's no reason why we shouldn't all have altar and pulpit fellowship and we ought to be together. And it was trying to bring that about. There were uh, subtle things that were said even within Lutheran circles. Well, what about us Lutherans? Well, we separated from Rome, um, from the Roman church. What about us? Well, instead of, you know, we don't want to just be a denomination because, cause, well, that's like being apart and, and separate. We want to be the body of Christ. We want to be a part of a larger, we want to, in fact, let's view ourselves not so much as a separate denomination. You know, Luther didn't want that. Let's view ourselves as a confessing movement within the church Catholic, which within the larger church. The idea being that, uh, you know, we're going to help others within the body, but we don't ever want to be. We want to we draw it together. Well, as this ecumenical movement uh, moved even further you can see this ecumenical movement finally turned to what was called dialogue. And every church body began to say, hey, let's start talking. The Lutheran World Federation in 1957 <laughs> said, let's talk to the Roman Catholic Church and see if we can work things out. And that's the beginning of... Uh, in 1959, they didn't realize it, but already a couple years later... Again, there had been lots of changes, and the Roman church was affected as well. Pope John Paul said, everything's changed in the church so much, we're going to call a Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council. He calls it in 1959. It doesn't start until about 1962, after he has died, um, and goes for, uh, for three years. Uh, great changes within the Roman Catholic Church. We can't get into that, but many of the things that happened in Protestantism also happened in Roman Church. In 1960, the Consultation on Church Union um, started having discussions, that is, between the United Presbyterian Church, the Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church, and the United uh, uh, Churches of Christ that began to meet to see if they could establish a united church, one that would be truly Catholic, truly evangelical, truly reformed. 
Now, the truly Roman Catholic, truly Lutheran, and truly Protestant. So we'll be nothing. We won't teach anything. So, <laughs> you just kind of go, well, those are the three major groups. Yeah, but we're, all, we're going to be all of them. I mean, I mean that, that's what's going on. At first, the Lutherans preferred to be observers, um, uh, but, you know, as things moved on. Uh, finally, in 1962, the Presbyterians issued a call to dialogue. It was accepted by the Lutheran World Federation and the LCMS. Let's talk with the conservative Presbyterians and see about doctrine, see if we can uh, get together. Between 1965 and 1973, there were 17 meetings between the Lutheran World Federation and the Roman Catholics. Uh, it does finally result in 1999, you might remember something called the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, in which the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics, now when I say the Lutherans, it was not the Missouri Senate, it was ALC, LCA, and some of these others, said, we talked to them about justification by grace through faith, and we've come to an agreement. And we go, well, if you'd really come to an agreement, we'd get together. Because the doctrine of justification is the central doctrine. Everything else falls into place, if you can agree upon that. Um, you know, I, I don't think so. Um, it is the usual dialogue, and I don't have time to, do, to go through, but it's the usual dialogue where we come together and say, well, we understand that when you Lutherans say that you're justified by grace through faith apart from works, we understand that you're trying to make sure that Jesus is put forward as, as, as of prime importance and of his work. And the Lutherans say, oh, when you as a Roman Catholic say that you're saved by uh, faith and good works, you're trying to make sure that we don't lead an immoral life and you're trying to show that uh, good works are, are something that needs to be done by Christians. Oh, now that we understand why you would say that, we can all agree that we ought to do good works and we ought to put Jesus. And we go, um, this kind of dialogue is... is um, there were other dialogues. It didn't just go to Rome, and it wasn't just Presbyterians. Between 1965 and 1970, there were dialogues with the Eastern Orthodox... There were dialogues with the Protestant Episcopal Church. There were dialogues with the American Jewish Committee. To see if we can work out things. The dialogues were all over the place, and they were talking with everyone. So, that finishes up kind of my white sheet. What happens? Well, as it goes forward, what we're going to find... And I'm just going to um, quickly show you. I'm skipping part seven. I just want to quickly show you part eight. We're not going to go through part eight. We're going to go through part seven. But with part eight, what do we find? We found that in 1982, the LCA, the ALC, and the AELC agreed to a merger. In 1988, it comes about... Uh, it is called the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Um, and so these, uh, all of the Lutherans, except for Synodical Conference, Missouri and whatever, all go together. What we're going to find is that concerning these ecumenical endeavors, as you get to the end, by the time we get to 1997, the ELCA is in full communion with the Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Churches in America, and the United Church of Christ. And by 1999, they're in full communion with the Episcopal Church. And in 1999 later, with the Moravian Church. And in 2009, they're in full communion with the United Methodist Church. So these ecumenical, which went to dialogue, finally results in the ELCA is in communion, altar and pulpit fellowship, with everybody. And, and you go, well, some of these don't even believe the body and blood and Lord's Supper. Yeah, 
Some of these, the United Churches of Christ, um, don't even have a Trinitarian confession. But they're all in fellowship. That is the way that it progressed to kind of let you see how this ecumenical movement um, uh, was, was huge. If the historical critical method, which is what we're going to see now with, uh, with Missouri and things of that sort, the ecumenical movement was a sister and was side by side with it and, and um, uh, allowed a lot of this to happen. All right, part seven. Take a look at your uh, backside of that pink sheet. Let's take a look at what we usually call the walkout and Seminex. Hmm. Um, progressive movement. <sighs> I don't know what to put. I'm going to say it all depends on the books that you read. If you read books by the conservatives in the Missouri Senate, they will describe the two groups as conservatives and moderates. Okay? If you read those who are outside of Missouri describe what went on, they will talk about the ultra-conservatives and the moderates. Nobody describes anyone as a liberal. Just, just saying. I don't know how this happens, but um, you know, everybody's pretty good guys. It's just they're just a little different. The problem, if you, uh, um, uh, if you're within Missouri, the problem with the moderates is that there was a few bad apples, and we needed to correct, you know, some of these, this use of this as being a problem. If you're outside, the problem was they were all pretty good Lutherans, but the ultra-conservatives caused a split by their mean hatredness. It all depends on where you're standing. So, I'm not quite sure. I decided to use the term progressive most of the time simply to describe the group that's not faithful to the confessions. We'll call it that and, and leave it. Um, what do I find? Um, in Nelson's book, in page 515, as he finishes up the 1960s, and we talked about all the great changes and everything that went on, he says, by the 60s, Lutherans faced an identity crisis. Not unlike that, the earlier the 19th century. Numerous questions seemed to demand answers. In other words... The Lutherans, by the time we got to the 60s and the ecumenical movement and everything that had happened, were kind of going, well, what does it mean to be Lutheran now? For example, within the American, within the spectrum of American Christianity. So, now that we're looking at all the Christians and everything that's going on, did Lutheranism have a viable future as a separate confessional church? I mean, is there any reason that the Lutherans should be confessional and, and when we look at all the rest of the Christians and, you know, are, are we going to survive if, if we are that way? In the face of the so-called great issues of the last third of the 20th century, Lutherans began to say, was there anything unique and therefore worthy of preservation among Lutheranism? We began to look at everyone else and going, well, I don't know, you know, some are real good at missions and they're doing this. And, you know, I, what do we have? Uh, much serious reflection during the decade had not provided a resolution with sharply defined contours, recognizably Lutheran and ecumenical and practical. Note those three. We, Lutheran, um, but is it ecumenical? And then finally, in practice, is it going to work? Um, if you continue to try to be Lutheran, is it viable? Is it practical? And finally, if you are Lutheran, you're going to have trouble being ecumenical, playing with everyone else. This is where we were at the beginning of the 60s. Why did we get to this point where we're having an identity crisis about we're not quite sure what Lutheran is and we don't know, therefore, if we want to be it? 
So, the history, as you can see, um, it was. It, it, it definitely was. All right. Um, uh, I couldn't put everything on here, um, but there was a lot going on. By 1958, as I mentioned before, most of the time, if you study this issue, here's what you have. Missouri Senate's going along fine. Whoops! There was a... Uh, um, um, everything's going along fine. Oh, no, 1974, there was a seminary walkout, and there were people that were using the historical critical method. They walked off. We said, see ya, and we got our church back. That's pretty well it. Okay? Um, it's, well, I, I don't know that it's wrong. It just doesn't explain where this came from and what was done. Um, as I mentioned before, in Nelson's book, he gets to 1962 to the Cleveland Convention, and he goes, oh, great, we're, Missouri is finally coming on board, and everything's going to be good in Lutheranism. Why does he do that? Well, all right, 1958, Martin Shalman wrote a, he was the, uh, a wonder kid, he was a professor, he was uh, putting out a paper that questioned inerrancy of scripture. Is it with heirs or is it not? Um, it caused a crisis and he uh, apologized for the paper and took it away. There was a man named Herman Otten who was uh, at the seminary who uh, complained about this. By 1962, Herman Otten is publishing a newspaper called Christian News, later called Lutheran News, in which he is exposing the false teaching that is going on at the seminary and within the Missouri Senate. He was blackballed. He was refused ordination, although he had gone all the way through and had gone to get an advanced degree, and they wouldn't authorize him to be a pastor within the Missouri Senate. There was a congregation that gave him a call, and he served there to the end of his life, um, always wanting to be licensed in the Missouri Senate, and they never would. Why? Because he exposed the stuff that was going on. In 1962, the Cleveland Convention, it replaced a retiring President Bankin with uh, a new synodical president named Oliver Harms. Put the word progressive. This is the beginning of this back and forth uh, that is going to go on. In a book... Uh, called uh, The Breath of God, The Words of Man, I think is the name of it. I don't remember where I have it. Um, is it up the top? Nope. Um, a historian, Lawrence Rast, says this. He observed an oscillation between progressives and conservative positions in the LCMS, he says, since 1938. I'm going to say it's at least from 62, where it becomes political. That resulted in part in a response to a legalistic or reactionary trend in the Senate already seen in the 1880s. Against this, moderates fought hard for changes in, remember what we talked about, fellowship, doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, and hermeneutics, historical critical method. After the foundation of the changes were laid between 1935 and 1945, hermeneutics changes bloomed rapidly across the LCMS landscape. It was being used after this. We're going to find another event that's going to explode it as well. But these post-war cultural changes, after the war, exasperated frustration in the LCMS. He goes on to talk about uh, we have documented the evangelical mainline tension in the LCMS. These factors energized the oscillations that Rast observed. Theological conversation gave way to exercising institutional power. What does that mean? Prior to this, there was theological discussions when there were theological problems 
you dealt with it by theology. And you, if, if you needed to, there was, you could file charges, there was a court to rule upon the theology. From 1962 on, politics took over. And at this point, it's about who is in control institutionally and how you can force things to happen. When you do this institutionally, you never deal with the real issue. And so, if the Senate in convention votes 55% to 45% that we're not going to use the historical critical method, that's the way it is. The other 45% go underground. And they stick around till the next convention. And then you have a vote again. What are you going to do with the, the next time? Um, this oscillation is what we're going to see. Oliver Harms, this is the first one that starts to change the Senate. The Senate changes greatly between 1962 and 1969. After 1962, the conservatives organized politically to try to bring Senate back. Before this, politics was off. You did not have um, papers uh, speaking for or against candidates. You did not have a voter list where you said, vote for these candidates that are coming up. It just didn't happen. Why? Because the idea was that, well, we're all in the same church, and we all believe and teach the same things. So, there may be different personalities, but that's not a problem. It was a problem, and that's why they did it. Um, uh, By the 1965 Detroit Convention, it was already uh, playing a big part. By 1967... Now, this is, they were having conventions every two years. By 1967, Oliver Harms had so harmed the Missouri Senate by his appointments, by the things that the synodical president chooses who's on the committees. The synodical president has, has pretty big power. Note what happened by 1967. First of all, the New York Convention in 67 voted to dissolve the Synodical Conference. Now, you might remember, the Synodical Conference was Wells and ELS and Missouri. And and guess what? Due to what Missouri was doing, they didn't want to play ball with us anymore. And pretty well at this point, we went, listen, what's its use? Let it go away. Two, they voted to study the question of membership in the World Councils of Churches and to study membership in the Lutheran World Federation. Now, this was unthinkable. This was, you know, they were, they were having fellowship, and, and we were definitely not united in that, and only way, but uh, in this, and yeah, let's study it. I mean, this is always the thing whenever you disagree. You study it and study it and study it until finally, well, guess what? We studied it so much, now we think we agree. They voted to refer the question of altar and pulpit fellowship with the Lutheran Church in America. They referred it to the Committee on Theology and Church Relations, the CTCR, and they voted to take steps towards declaring altar and pulpit fellowship with the American Lutheran Church. Now, up to this point, oh, at this point they said, hey, Let's, let's study this one. And you know what? We were already progressing with the ALC. Let's have a committee that's going to work this out and we'll move forward with it. And this happened to be, as I mentioned, 67, when we joined the Lutheran Church USA. Um, well, uh, if the conservatives started to organize politically and were concerned, by this point it was at a high fever, and they threw the thing into overdrive. By 1969, at the Denver Convention, things changed. Uh, This is the first time that the Missouri Senate had a synodical president thrown out of office and someone new elected who wasn't retiring. Oliver Harms was not retiring. But they elected Jacob A. O. Preuss uh, uh, at this Denver convention. He was considered the conservative. He was the one that was going to uh, uh, 
take back the things that were going on uh, with the Senate. Um, it was a shock to everyone that was there. Um, Oliver Harms had already, uh, in his opening speech, declared how they were going to, we were all going to go in fellowship, Missouri, with the American Lutheran Church. And by the end of the first day, or beginning of the second day, I don't remember, um, he's no longer in power, and uh, Jacob Royce is in power. The convention that threw Oliver Harms out and said no to the liberal agenda also later voted to declare fellowship with the American Lutheran Church. And so we kind of look at Denver as kind of the schizophrenic convention where they threw the one out but said, oh yeah, we're going to go into fellowship with the ALC. Um, And yet, in the text of the resolution, it acknowledges that the LCMS and the ALC did not have full agreement on all doctrinal matters, but we promised to talk together. So we said, we're not in agreement, but we're going into fellowship. We went, oh, okay. Um, Who is the uh, synodical president of the American Lutheran Church? Daniel Preuss's cousin, Daniel Preuss. Now, it was a little unusual to elect even Jacob A.O. Preuss uh, because it's not a German. That was our first mistake. (laughs) (laughs) We kind of went... Um, But we had been Americanized so far, and at this point, we're not concerned about that anymore. But it it, it was interesting. And most of his relations came out of the ELS, or Norwegian kind of thing, and that's where his cousin is leading uh, uh, that. That happens in 1969. Um, To explain just a little bit more, again, this wasn't just a... um, uh, a chance kind of thing, uh, there is a study called the Stroman study. They cite this thing all the time, um, at least when I was going through seminary. Um, in 1970, the Stroman study did a survey of, of Lutherans and, and particularly Lutherans. Note this, 79% of the LCA clergy, 62% of the ALC clergy, and 58% of LCMS clergy surveyed agreed a merger of all Lutheran groups in the United States into one organization is desirable. So when I say that, you know, there may have been different things on paper, there is a pretty small amount of difference going on within them, and it's affecting everybody. In 1970, there was an investigation into the faculty members at Concordia Seminary. Earlier, Oliver Harms um, uh, was told about this by uh, uh, Walter uh, Otten, uh, Herman Otten, um, and there were rumblings about this. There were uh, investigations in which the seminary is, is overseen by something called the Board of Control. The Board of Control said, there's no problems. <clears throat> Until 1970, after 1970, two years later, uh, I don't remember what the convention um, is, after Oliver Harms' appointments on the Board of Control were taken out and Preuss was put in, there finally was an investigation uh, into 45 of the 50 or 90% of the seminary teachers were teaching the historical critical method and were uh, teaching that the Bible was not inerrant and not inspired, you know, these, these kind of things. Um, uh, I, can, I can go more with it, but, but that's, in effect, kind of what happens. Um, I include in here in, 19, uh, in November of 1970, we go, into agree- we go into fellowship with the ALC, In November of 1970, 
uh, the Lutheran Church in America ordains the first woman uh, pastor. In December of 1970, the ALC ordains the first woman pastor. We went into fellowship in July or something of June or July of, of 1969. Um, were we in agreement? Well, in a year and a half, we're in fellowship with congregations that can have women as, as pastors. Um, 1971, the Milwaukee Convention gets together. Um, because of all of these problems that were going on, the theme of it was sent to reconcile. Let's bring all of us together. Let's quit fighting. Let's try to work this out. Um, what we found was that didn't happen at all. By 1973 in July at the New Orleans, everything blew up. At this point, there's a battle between J.A. Preuss for the conservatives, a man named John Tejan, who was president of Concordia uh, St. Louis for the liberals. What happened? Well, the seminary president, two months before this convention happened, resigned, and John Tejan was put in charge concerning it. Um, no, um, back, I'm sorry, let me go back. I got the wrong one. In 1969, when Jacob O. Preuss and the did ALC, two months before this, the seminary president resigned, Tejan was put in charge. Tejan, from 1969 down to 1973, has ramped up uh, what's going on at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Um, over 18 professors have been brought in new. That's a pretty big amount in a very short amount of time. Um, all of them teaching the historical critical method. Um, by the time we get to 1973, July, there are accusations, there are um, you know, of, of what's going on in St. Louis, um, it was put into a big fight. This is where your Senate is finally going to deal with it. The liberals thought that they would elect Oswald Hoffman. He was the Lutheran Hour speaker. He was the moderate um, that they were going to do. He didn't let his name stand. Um, they didn't have a candidate at this point. They kind of lost because of not dealing politically maneuvering uh, uh, enough. During this convention, um, uh, it was put forward that this needs to be taken care of. They voted to reaffirm the binding nature of synodically adopted doctrinal statements. Back uh, in the 50s, they said we're not going to allow that. They re reaffirm it. They referred the charges against Chijin to the Board of Control, which is now going to be in charge of uh, Preuss. Uh, they tabled a motion to declare fellowship to be with the ALC to be in a state of sus uh, suspension. And from 1973, we figure out that something's going to happen. We're finally going to deal with what's going on. Uh, it starts to happen. Uh, there is a group called ELIM, Evangelical Lutherans in Mission, uh, they were a group of liberals. Uh, they met about uh, a month later. There's over a hundred pastors that meet with this, saying we're going to stay within Missouri, but we're going to uh, be in a state of protest, and we're going to take back the Senate because they're trying to fire teach and they're trying to take care of uh, these good people that are teaching the historical critical method. In August, the Board of Control voted to suspend Tejan. They didn't actually throw him out at that point. Um, they tried to delay implementation, try to talk to him, different things of this sort. As it turns out, in 1973, in September, the classes start. There are 600 seminarians and the uh, new, uh, uh, the new, the new academic year gets gets going. Martin Charlemagne is, is now in charge of the seminary, which is really anachronistic because he's the one that had the paper on inerrancy, and now he's on the good side. Um, he was one who 
issued the um, uh, issued the announcement that they are going to discipline John Tejan and he is going to be fired. From the point that he is uh, fired, uh, the 45 professors on campus say, we're not doing our job. We're not going to follow Martin Shalman, who has now been made seminary president. After a month, he puts out a letter that says, you will get back to doing your jobs or there will be consequences kind of thing. It is at that point that there is what's called the walkout. What happens is that uh, of the 400, I think 300 seminarians said, yeah, we're not going to classes anymore until you take care of this. And the professor said, yeah, we're not doing it either. They figure that they're going to be fired and they've already been told you're going to have about eight days to get off of campus or you're going to be trespassing. They stage a walkout. What they do is they call the uh, newspapers, they call the television, they have this big procession um, investments, they walk out through the doors, they have wooden boards put up uh, that says seminary and exile behind them, and they sing hymns. Um, the seminary says, see ya. They do not bring them back. This group then goes on to form what's called seminary in exile. We call it Seminex, in which they said, well, we've got 45, you only got five professors. We're going to have our own seminary called Seminex. We're going to finish things out. And that's what they did. Um, the LCMS seminary, Concordia with the five, uh, stay behind. Ralph Bowman ends up becoming seminary president, uh, Later, he or later he'll become synodical president. Um, they recover in about three years um, concerning what is going on. In 1976, these groups that left formed what was called the AELC, or the Association of Evangelical Lutheran Church. How many? Approximately 250 congregations, about 100,000 members, um, go to form a new church body. Um, 200 to 300. Um, so somewhere between, about 75% that went. Um, the four, <laughs> it was in Springfield. Um, it was considered a practical seminary. Um, and so you didn't have uh, uh, that. You do have, what's interesting is, the senior college, which was the pre-seminary college that you went there and then you went to Concordia Seminary um, in order, was in Fort Wayne and it was liberal as all get out. In 1977 and 79, the conventions of the LCMS said, we're in fellowship, but we're in protest. And they're still in fellowship with the ALC. It is in 1977 that the LCMS withdraws from the LCUSA. In 1978, those who left Missouri, AELC joins the LCUSA and issues a call for unity. And it is not until 1981 that fellowship is finally terminated with the ALC. At this point, uh, um, at this point, Kreuz retires. They elect Ralph A. Bowman, who was one of the five professors who was on campus um, that was faithful. He serves from 1981 to 1992. To give you um, page 537 to give you just um, Nelson tells us that at this point he says one of the reports made the judgment that 
Contemporary thought gave little emphasis to such traditional Lutheran concerns as the significance of word and sacrament as the means of grace, the nature, not the mission of the church itself, and the concept of the church as the custodian and proclaimer of the gospel. In other words, most of Lutheran discussion was not about word and sacrament. It was not about who is church. It was not about proclaiming, being a custodian and proclaimer of the pure gospel. And so, you know, um, have things changed? Yes, quite quite a bit. Um, this is what um, this brings us to. Now, a couple things that, um, I, again, the history is interesting. Um, in fact, it may have a real effect even upon um, even upon uh, you. Um, Daily Egyptian from Southern Illinois University, July 1975. Um, a pastor, Reverend Robert Burke, LCMS, says, well, this Seminex kind of thing, they're, they're going to kick us out. He was a Seminexer. Um, and so, did it have an effect on Illinois, particularly on Southern Illinois? Absolutely. In fact, um, not only does it describe uh, uh, not only does it describe some of these things, it also talks about oh, I can't see it, but I'll find it in another one. Um, what about the new neighbor case? New neighbor case. Who's Herman New Neighbor? the president of the Southern Illinois District. There were eight district presidents out of the 30-plus that said, we side with the Seminex group. And by the time it gets to the point where Preuss has to deal something, there's five of them, and he was authorized to fire them. Sixty days before the Southern Illinois District Convention, Preuss hadn't done it. As it turns out, New Neighbor resigns, but he was the test case for what are we going to do with these district presidents, because here's what's happened. New Neighbor in Cahokia said, well, Seminex just graduated a candidate. We'll place them in one of our Missouri Senate congregations. And they said, you can't do that. Oh, yeah, I'm the district president. I can. And so it went like this. Um, We've started a mission in Marion, now called Our Redeemer Lutheran Church, which is ELCA. They and their pastor left in 1976, I think, to join the ELCA. Um, we have been affected in, in Southern Illinois on this. But um, why the history of itself is very interesting. But there is something that's even more uh, uh, important. One is, as I mentioned, the oscillation. Oliver Harms, um, mm, all right, we'll go with progressive. Progressive. Preuss, uh, uh, conservative. Um, Ralph Bowman comes back in, uh, progressive. Al Berry, conservative. Kieschnick, progressive. Matthew Harrison, conservative, yeah, I'm, I'm giving you close. Um, I'm going to pick most of these and throw them in the middle. And you can see, but what do you see going on? It's all being dealt with by politics and by elections. Most of these elections are anywhere from a 55% to a 52% vote. To say that this is the way that people in Missouri are, is, it's, it's just not so. The next thing that we find is this. Um, if there was already in 1958 things going on, by the time we get to 1970, and there's not a walkout until 1974, between 58 and 74, you're graduating 200 seminarians a year 
who are being taught and they are in Missouri. Next thing is, when we go in fellowship with the American Lutheran Church between 1969 and finally 1981, we now are in altar and pulpit fellowship. We are sharing pastors and what, as well as their seminarians can come to ours. Between those two times, we are being continually exposed, including you already see women being ordained, whatever, between this, and we're in fellowship with them. And they are also dealing with the historical critical method, the ecumenical thing, whatever. It's all that. Even after 1981, it was pretty hard to talk to your own congregation where we say, yes, we used to be in fellowship with your friends and neighbors and relatives in the ALC, and now we're not anymore. And many congregations continue to go, hmm, we're just going to kind of allow that to keep going on. That's interesting. It took four years, I guess, for ten, but when the, when the ALC got their women pastors, and then 1977, when they were in protest, they still in fellowship, and then four years later, that's when they terminated fellowship. I'd say anyone that thinks we didn't stick around in the LCMS long enough. <laughs> well, it, they decided that they took four years for them to decide they were not right. going to fellowship with that. I think six years was too long. Interesting. Um, just wanting to show a bigger picture of what was going on and why. Because, I mean, sometimes we would get to uh, um, you know, the point where you kind of go, well, where did all this come from? It was a long time coming. But it also was... Uh, um, and still is present and a part of uh, what was going on. When I quoted this one that said, this is the first major denomination to successfully defeat an infiltration of liberalism into its church body, that's technically true. But my point is that it's still, even though we do not use the historical critical method in our seminary and have not done that since '76 there is still those things going on. Something I, I noticed growing up in a Lutheran church is that Lutherans speak differently than other Christians, especially going to like, like, you know, a non-denominational school. The words we use are different, and the critical method changes the words All right, come on. And, and as a pretty often, oh, once you change the words you can describe something, it also allows you to think about it in a different way. Allows you to act in a different way. The words don't mean the same thing. But this is, I mean, a long time ago, they just these things where, you know, you can talk about it two different ways. Well, maybe you shouldn't have been able to talk about it because it gets looser and looser as you go. And I do think the, uh, this, we don't know what Lutheranism, our identity crisis, and then going forward to what we're talking about now. If you just think back historically, you know, there were arguments about what is church and what is ministry, and there was, there was arguments about... You don't see the arguments anymore. Um, there's political solutions. Um, there is, is the scripture an I inspired or an I errant? But what about what does the scripture teach concerning that? You know what? The Baptist church believes the scriptures are inspired and inerrant, but we're quite different. That, that in and of itself doesn't make you go, oh, we ought to be in fellowship. There's, some, there's more going on. Karn? Yeah. It
teaching you in school, you know, and all of a sudden, what's going on? Um, and you're in the midst of it, you don't even know what kind of teaching you're getting. It depends on every teacher right about them. So it just depended on who was up on the stage and who was teaching us and who they picked for teaching religion class. No wonder we were just up and didn't know what was what. Because it was just a big, big mess. Um, congregations, uh, families were torn apart. This, this terribly affected sin. So much so that when, when, you know, a couple things. When, when we talked about leaving Missouri, um, that opened a new wound, an old wound from people that said, never again. Never again. I went through that. That would never happen again. Um, the other thing, and, and I, you know, I've hinted at it, describing, you know, in, in talking, you know, I, I, as Karin mentioned, when she grew up, she was told, we're the conservatives. Having taken a look at the history, she went, wait a minute, we weren't the conservatives? Um, really? You know, that's what I was told. Um, you know, these other groups were the ultra crazy, you know, whatever. Um, so, yeah, all of a sudden you begin to go back and look at things and kind of go, Huh. Um, it all depends on who you compare yourself to. Eric. So you talked about the however long they had at the seminary where they were losing historical Christianity and however many seminaries went through during that time. I guess all of those seminaries that have been probably retired. And so, um, I'm going to take a look and, and show you where the ELCA went. Um, then I'm going to come back and hit Missouri from 81 to present. Kind of, uh, what you're going to find is that the political groups just remain within, and so we become this big church tent in which we can embrace all the groups and each have their own little political faction. You come back to Senate the next time, and if you can get your 51 percent, you know you can get your guy elected. So you get Kishnik elected, and we do contemporary worship and unionism and whatever, and then you go, oh, we'll get the next guy elected. Okay, we're going to stop doing that. We're going to do this. And that's that's what's happened. They do. Where did, was it in the 1920s, this idea of democracy that really proud of the LCMS? Because the pastors kind of got more of a say for that. Um, the polity, which is congregational, begins to pose the problem with 1962. That's when you see the first, um, you saw it with the first German speaking president followed by the first English and that's I think Oliver Harms it's just that's his first language is English um, but you yeah you do have all of a sudden that which had been set up before didn't seem to be a problem at this point that is the way you solve the problems <laughs> So in 1981, Robert Preuss, in his last speech, decries the terribleness of politics in the church. But it's politics that brought him in, and he used it completely for the entire time that he was here, 
in every avenue. But you're right. At this point, you you can you can't. I, I got to stop. We're over. Um, let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that it is your word and sacraments that might always direct our attention, uh, that we might receive the uh, the true teaching of your word. Uh, the message of law to show us our sin, but especially the gospel that reveals our Savior and in whom we trust. In his name we pray. Amen.